welcome to your podcast or mine, where the creative minds behind the mic are interviewed. Now, let's get things started. Here's your host, Sherry. Welcome to your podcast or mine. I'm Sherry, and today I'm speaking with Kate, the creative mind behind the podcast, Ignorance with Bliss. So just want to welcome you for joining me today, Kate. So um, let's start with who you are and give a brief description of Ignorance with Bliss. Sure. Thank you for talking with me. Um, I am a forensic psychologist, and used to work in a prison, used to work in a psych hospital. And then after that, I went on and became a crisis clinician, which is the person that you meet with when you first walk into the emergency room with mental health or substance abuse concerns. And so I've kind of been on all points of entry and exit, I suppose, from the mental health system and the criminal justice system. And I love that work. I really feel like people with profound crisis or mental illness and people with, you know, felony or misdemeanor convictions aren't treated as human in the way that the rest of us take for granted sometimes. So I loved the work and I missed it tremendously. I broke my back in 2014. And so that meant a lot of time sitting at home recovering and feeling sorry for myself. And then I realized after time that I was listening to podcasts and I would hear somebody ask a question. What does it mean to be not guilty by reason of insanity? Or what's the difference between bipolar and manic depression or, you know, something like that. Some question that to me is a very basic question by now because I've answered it a lot. But I would answer, you know, I would say the response out loud alone in my living room and they wouldn't <laughs> hear me. You know, because they already did their recording six months ago. And after a while, I decided, you know what, I'm just, I'm going to start my own show. I I have these things to say. And my show started off very true crime. This is in February of 2018. And I kind of expected it to stay there. And I expected it to be more sort of luxury almost in format. But very quickly, it turned into first, like a conversation more than it's not really an interview I'm not very structured and after maybe six months or so I realized I love the true crime genre and and topics but I also really like talking to normal people you know and (laughs) and hear just collecting stories yeah I know whatever normal means right yeah so I just started I let go I let go of that that concept that I have to be in one single genre which is one of the beautiful things about podcasting. And that's where I am now, Um, coming up on my 200th episode. So I've talked to a lot of people. It's been amazing. Yes, I was just going to mention that you're closing in on your 200th episode. So uh, what keeps you going? Just the, the interaction with different people? Yeah, I mean, the connections that I've made, of course, there are going to be people that you talk to and you're like okay that happened moving on (laughs) right and then there are other times you talk to somebody and like something just clicked 
we are we are friends. We are best friends now, you know, by the end of the call for these people that I've never spoken to before. And I love that unpredictability of it. I love the randomness of topic. Uh, sometimes when I'm talking to people, we plan fairly extensively. What exactly are we going to talk about? How long is it going to take? That kind of thing. Other times, it's literally like, okay, so I'll talk to you at 8 p.m. on Tuesday. Go. And all of it, it keeps me engaged. It keeps me feeling competent and productive in a way that I was not feeling being on disability. And every once in a while, I kind of hit a slump where I'm just like, "Eh, I don't, I'm not enjoying this as much. And usually it's because either I'm sick or because something has happened in my life to kind of take the wind out of my sails elsewhere. And I find then that if I just sort of slow it down for a little bit and give myself the space, like I don't follow a a structured release schedule. And so I just let it slow down and I give myself a little bit of time and space. And then when I come back to it, I'm like, oh, that's right. That's what this is. This is what I love doing. Something interesting that we share is uh, your uh, life as a, addictions working with um in a mental facility and correctional facility my mother actually was an rn she's retired now but uh she was an rn at a correctional facility and also a mental institution and um so she would come home with a lot of stories or i would get phone calls from these places about what would occur there so Um, that's very, you know, she was very much into like the abnormal, um, psyche part of, of nursing, although she did, uh, orthopedics and, you know, uh, med surge type of things. She worked, she loved, uh, the unusual part of nursing the most, (laughs) working with those people. So I certainly know. Yeah. uh, I just like talking to people. You know what I mean? Like I, I, the number of people that I talk to who are like, I don't have anything interesting to say. I don't know why you'd want to talk to me. And to me, that's like a throwdown. <laughs> you know, like I guarantee I can find something interesting, no matter who it is that I'm talking to. Everybody's got a story. Oh, everyone has a story. Yeah. <laughs> everyone has and a so, story. You know, I just, I, I tended to gravitate toward the prison and, the the psych hospital and the hospitals, the emergency rooms and that kind of thing, because those are the people that get the least attention and are, are like if you listen to most true crime podcasts, if they talk about the offender as a human being, it's in order to call them names. And if they talk about, they use words like crazy a lot. And that's how, like, those words have a place. But it, it to me, there's also a human being behind those words, and that oh, person sure. deserves as much attention as they can get. And so, the more competent RNs and therapists and doctors that we can get to spend at least some time working in the criminal justice system, the better. 
Well, there's also the intervention aspect, too. Like if, if there's the correct amount of intervention there, you may prevent a crime from happening. You may prevent a suicide. You may prevent um, other unfortunate things from happening. If you treat the person with respect and as a human being, do you agree? Um, yes and no, um, to part, different parts of that. So I think it is more important to treat people in crisis, people who are locked away in some form as human beings than it is to treat anybody else on the planet as a human being because they don't get it enough. They don't get enough respect. They haven't had enough respect. They've been hurt their whole lives. And sometimes it's just a matter of looking at somebody and saying, I see you, how you feel is valid. It gets better. You know, and and, and that can make their day better. That being said, I don't believe that there's anything that I can do as a human being to prevent another human being from committing a crime or dying by suicide. Yeah, I I could see where that comes into play because people who have already made up their mind to do something, they're going to do it regardless of who says what to whom. Right, and I have to, I like, that's one of the ways that you guard your own sanity as a practitioner is to recognize the lines between what I can impact and what I cannot. And I can impact my words. I can impact my genuineness with people and my attention and my regard, but I can't stop someone else from making their decisions. I can't even, like, even if I could, let's say, let's say somebody says to me that they're suicidal and I have them involuntarily admitted because they say to me, yeah, I'm suicidal. I'm going to walk out of here and do it right now. And so I have to have them in Massachusetts called section 12 um, in California. It's 5250, uh, you know, different names in almost every state, but involuntarily admitted. That means that I can prevent them from dying by suicide today, but bigger picture, I can't. I can only hope that they find something worth hanging on to and that it gets better inside their head and that they have learned at least one way to reach out for help. But at the end of the day, if they go on and die by suicide, if they go on and reoffend, I can't take that on myself. And so if I can't beat myself up for a failure, then I don't get to take any credit for a success. Right. I see where, I see where you're going with that. Absolutely. So um, getting back to the podcasting part of it, um, how do you locate uh, the guests that appear on your show? Are they uh, people that you know, people that you network with? Are there people that approach you? Um, or is it a combination of all three of the things that I've mentioned? Uh, yes, <laughs> it is. I will. I, I kind of joke, although not really joking, that I am a total pod slut. Like, I will talk to anybody. And so I've had 
a lot of other podcasters come on because those are the people that I know out in the world. Um, listeners have written me notes and said I have a story to tell, and they'll come on. I have gone after people, you know, approached people. I, I One of my friends is a, a publicist for a small book publishing company, and so every so often I'll hear from him, like, hey, can you feature these people on your show? So it's, it's a, a really wide variety of ways that people end up talking to me. So how do you record the show? Um, do you use any type of equipment for recording and editing? How, what is that process? Um, yeah, I, most of my – okay, so it depends on what the other person's capacity is. I've learned the, the question to start with is, are you able to record locally? Because that helps me know how they're going to connect with me. Because the best sound quality is always going to be if you get two podcasters, each with their normal recording setup, and we connect so that it's by Skype or even by phone, but we're each recording our end. So I have a mic. Um, the one I have now, I I don't know. People ask me, people ask me, and I never know what kind of mic it is. It's silver. Um, that works I I started off with the blue snowball it died and I have something that's a step up and if I if I move around too much to to figure it out then it'll just sound awful Um, excuse me Uh, but so I have a mic I have a pop filter which is super important that's the thing that prevents the the, that sound that you get when people are are too close to the mic and, and the the plosives, the P's and the B's get real loud. So I have that. And otherwise, I mean, I, I bought a new laptop, but that's because I needed one. And the editing software that I use is, for, is free. And so if we both are able to, then cool. We both record our own ends. They email it to me and I put it together. And if they're not, then I have a conference call line. And we just go that way. I am not. I, I I am of the mindset that content is more important than sound quality. So if I have somebody who's like, no, look, the only way I can call you is in my car while I'm driving home from work. Then that's what they're going to do, and you're going to be able to tell. But if they have a compelling story, and everybody does, then that's what we work with. Yeah. So uh, lately, uh, there have been stories or, or articles about the big old pod fade thing. Um, <laughs> you know, saying that podcasters usually um, a large amount and their shows after seven episodes. Um, what are your thoughts on that, and how do you avoid it? Well, I've had one show that has pod faded um, already, so. This one, I started with no idea that that was a thing, but what allowed me to avoid ignorance was bliss pod baiting is that I'm very flexible in terms of format, and like I said, sometimes I'll release five episodes in a week. Sometimes I'll go two weeks without releasing an episode, and I just sort of let go. Like, there are podcasters who need a lot more structure than that. I don't. 
and I need to be more relaxed with myself in that manner, and that allows me to kind of flex and change. And I think knowing that I can do that, and so also what what sort of seems to happen is that I'll 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 have somebody come on my show from a certain population, say an author or a true crime podcaster or an audio drama podcaster, and once they come on, their friends will hear them and their friends will come on. And so I'll go through a span. So like for a while, I had almost exclusively true crime podcasters, and then I had a series of of um, authors of different genres but from this one publishing house and then lately it's been a lot of audio drama people and it's not exclusively that but it just seems like it sort of clumps together because it's it's people who know each other are coming on my show in groups and so that helps it keep it feel new I had another show that was called We Too and that is no longer on regular podcasts uh, podcatchers anymore. It's not on iTunes anymore because I didn't want to keep paying for hosting after the show died. But it is on my Patreon for free. So anybody can go there and catch it if they want to hear the entire I think it's 13 episodes. Um, where my co-host and I just were having a hard time scheduling. We were having a hard time sort of aligning our definition of what the show was. And it was starting to feel to me a bit like ignorance was bliss 2.0, you know, in the sense that it was an interview show except with two hosts instead of one. And I don't know. It's just sort of exactly what it is. Like the the motivation to keep doing it faded. It just, it, it, it stopped being a compelling concept for me where I started off super excited about it. And ultimately, I I had a moment where I realized I have to let this go because it is more important to me to remain friends with my co-host than it was to make this show work. I understand that. Well, do you find that, I mean, you just have to step away and enjoy your life a little bit too, like just uh, walk away from the microphone for even a weekend or even uh, like an extended vacation or something like that uh, to go to the beach or um, spend time with your family instead of behind a microphone too, you know, because podcasters have lives outside of podcasting unbeknownst to other people out there. (laughs) You spend a lot of time behind the computer or, uh, you know, interviewing or um, talking to people or networking or it's a lot of work. Um, Oh, boy. So, <laughs> so uh, it takes time away from other things that you might want to be doing. So you just kind of have to push away from the the desk and, and walk away and, and live your life a little bit, too. Yeah, I I actually started my podcast as an escape a little bit as well, you know, the timing of it. Because at the time, my father had just moved in. And he had some mental health issues himself and was a difficult person to be around often. Like he was great for short periods of time, but when it was seven days a week, 
I was losing my mind a little bit myself. And it was just a tremendously stressful time of life because, you know, I had my father move in with us. I have four children. And so I was sort of the definition of that sandwich generation where you're, you're stuck between two generations trying to meet everybody's needs but your own. And the fact that it occurred to me to start a podcast then I think is not coincidence. I think my, I was laying awake at night trying to unconsciously trying to come up with like some way of giving myself something to do that stepped out of the stress. And then for the most part, like I, you know, I try to balance exactly what you're saying. Like I work on the podcast more during the the hours when the kids are at school or after 8 PM when the kids are in bed so that I'm not, I don't want it to ever feel like a drain on the family. That being said, in April of this year, 2019, my father died by suicide. And, of course, that took me out at the knee. It took all of us out at the knee. Um, It was a tremendously stressful and difficult time. And I didn't know how to cope with a lot, a lot of that situation. And so having this, this hobby that is so engrossing and, when I'm talking to somebody, like I don't, I don't call them interviews unless I sort of slip up and I'm, or I'm not paying attention because it doesn't feel like an interview. It feels just like a conversation, you know, and, and I'm just getting to know somebody they're talking, you know, and I, I am more, I share more of myself than I would if I was strictly interviewing or than I would if I was doing, you know, an, a psychological assessment, that kind of thing. And that means I have to be very present. You know, I can't just phone it in, I guess, although that's kind of exactly what you're doing. But you know what I mean? I can't, like, tune out and just sort of ask a list of pre-written questions. That's I don't know how to do that. Um, and I certainly didn't have the mental capacity to relearn a new way of podcasting in that moment in time. And so being forced to, if I wanted to continue this hobby that I really love and I've made so many really close friends with, and I did want to continue it, then that meant that I had to have these chunks of time where I have to set all of this noise from my life and all of this stress from my life to one side so that I'm here talking to you. And it's just you and me, and I'm getting to know your story and you know, so, or sometimes it's talking about, I don't know, a serial killer, which presumably most of my guests are actually not serial killers, but um, whatever it is, in the moment, we're here either talking about you or some specific topic or some specific story, whatever it might be, and that helped. And then afterward, doing the editing is engrossing. It's a different part of the brain. It's not a thought word conversation part of the brain, but it is staring at a screen and it's going through a certain process and every podcaster has their own sort of editing workflow. And that helped me a lot, especially in the earliest days when everything was so chaotic and difficult, was to be able to be like, all right, I have to go do this thing because I I, I can't I can't tolerate any more of this. And it's not about crying. It's not about grieving. It's just about I can't. I, I've hit my limit, 
And so I need some way of getting out of my own head, and podcasting did that for me. It allows you to com- um, compartmentalize, uh, uh, you know what I mean. Um, <laughs> it allows you to, to put it in one place and get back to it at another time. You're Yeah, no, exactly. Oh, There's a, a, a lot of compartmentalization. And also, I did notice a lot of bleed-in in terms of, you know, beginning in April, like, even before I exactly came on and announced what had happened on my show, my friends knew what had happened. And so I was, like, friends of mine, there's a period of time in, in first in March when I'd had surgery and then in April where friends of mine are introducing my show for me um, because I was not able to, but my show kept happening. And that was such a relief to me because it's like, this is this thing that I've worked so hard to do. And then once I, I sort of announced, like, this is a thing that has just happened, and there's an episode that is just me talking about my father's death, and death, and it is rough. Like, it is not an easy listen. But life isn't a lot yeah. of times. And then from then, ah, at least, I don't know, 30% of the time, maybe more, my father comes up. His death, his loss, what it has done to me, the grieving process, something comes up in every episode. So it's not as neatly compartmentalized as I might like it to be, but still, at the very least, I'm not doing the what-ifs and the the hurting or the blankness of grief. Right. First of all, my condolences to you in in regard to your father's passing. Um, I never say I'm sorry because uh, my father passed away. People said I'm sorry and it kind of got to me in a uh, more psychological way because they didn't cause the the, the death to occur. <laughs> so um, I never say I'm sorry, but I do um, feel your pain and your loss um, in a different way, but I do feel it. So... I want to share that with you first, but I can relate with you in in the in regard to um, your motivation to start podcasting because I myself and I really don't share it too often on my podcast because it is an interview style. It's not it's conversational at points, but it is uh, mainly interview style um, because I really want to get behind the nuts and bolts of of podcasting and and what the motivation is and of that sort however i uh had a near-death experience in 2011 i was hit head-on by someone who came into my lane and i really thought that was it and uh subsequently have had 18 surgeries since that time so i know the I know where your motivation to start doing something creative and when you're speaking to someone who can't listen to you that's recorded a podcast six months before you has, <laughs> that's where I got my motivation from too. So, Yeah, a lot of podcasters have these like, it's not, I don't think they're escaping pain so much as channeling it, funneling it. I think a lot of us are tremendously creative individuals. And so, you know, myself, before my dad moved in, 
years and years before. So he moved in late 2017. In 2010, I had a near-death experience myself. And so I, I know what that experience of reset is like. And I think that a part of me with the podcasting was like, you know what? I want my kids to hear my voice someday. I want my family to know who I was if I'm not around to tell them. So there are degrees of that for me as well, like that, you know, plus, you know, honestly, like before 2010, I had a blog and I've gone back and read my old blog to learn about who I was because I couldn't remember, I couldn't tap into that. So I think that there's something about that, about realizing, you know, we don't necessarily know how long we have. We don't know the day or the hour, right? And so if I'm ever going to create, now's the time. I'm going to do this. And that that chronic medical challenge of recovering, I I, I hear you. I see you. Do you know what I mean? Like I... There's something about that that I, that I don't wish on anybody else, but those of us who are in that club get how much it changes you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm laughing because, well, you know, first of all, after after that experience happened, the old Sherry died and, and the new Sherry was born, and I'm still learning who the new Sherry is. And I, I kind of, I like her a lot, but there are parts of her that, uh, of her that I wish had the old traits of, uh, <laughs> that, mm-hmm. uh, she used to have, so to speak. So, <laughs> uh, so that, but. The, well, I think people don't understand the concept of grief when it comes to yourself. Do you know what I mean? Like they, they, yeah. they understand. Like if people look at me and my father died and they're like, oh, that is grief. I'm like, well, that's one kind of grief. And by the way, I do, I, I appreciate your sentiment, sentiment in terms of not saying sorry. Like I don't, if I say sorry to someone, it's because I mean I apologize for a thing I screwed up. Right. Right. That's, that, that's yeah, I, that's, that's me too. <laughs> I say to somebody like, I, my, my phrase to most people, because it's the best way I know how to convey it is that I'm sitting with you in this. I'm sitting with you in the dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not alone. So that's that. But when I talk about going through the medical experience that I did, I spent myself a week and a half in a coma, and I, I only had 16 surgeries. So, you know. <laughs> <But that's laughs> hey, there's not only. <laughs> right, I know. Right? One. But, that when I came back, I had forgotten how to speak. I had forgotten how to handwrite. I had to relearn how to walk. And just, I still struggle with words in a way, just now that we're able to make a joke about it instead of, you know, it's not, I've learned how to use it and find the humor in it. But man, it was frustrating early on. <laughs> and that, I am not the person that I was before. I, I have lost abilities that I used to have. I've lost control in some ways, um, in the sense of, like, I am less patient than I used to be. I'm mm-hmm. more emotional, more reactive mm-hmm. than I used to be. Oh, yeah. I have chronic insomnia now that I never had before, and that so that messes with you. Mm-hmm. And I also lost 
a tremendous sense of, like I was 32 when, in mine was the case of I almost died in childbirth. And so I was young. I was not really contemplating mortality at that point. I was not thinking of, I mean, we had a will because my husband and I had kids. And so we were like, this is the responsible thing to do, but we hadn't checked it over in years. And I just hadn't thought about like, this could be it. You know, I was going to have a baby, like everything was going to be great. And ever since then, I've never had that full sort of blithe expectation of everything's going to be fine again. Like I've never walked into a room without some tiny grain of hopelessness that just follows me or not hopelessness, but helplessness, I guess, you know, that because I've gone all the way down to hopelessness. I've been psychiatrically admitted myself because I, I reached a point of being suicidal at one point. But for the most part, I'm fine. I'm, I'm certainly now, certainly the past couple of years, I've been much better. But I, I feel like once you've seen life get that dark, it's hard to ever ignore that shadow and the scars. I completely agree with that. I completely agree with that. And there is a fine line of uh, hopefulness and hopelessness. There is a line there, and it's really easy to cross both, (laughs) I I think. You know, I I found it very easy to slip into the darkness and, you know, try to claw my way back into the light basically, um, and do it kicking and screaming, <laughs> you know, um, because I, even, even after, you know, the recovery process is, is a difficult one, um, especially, uh, you know, going what, going through what we've both been through, after well going and having a surgery is like another day in the park for me i know what to expect i'm i'm fine with it i'm you know i get a little nervous but not that edgy i'm kind of like okay here we go again <laughs> you know and yeah. um it's the after part that's the the difficult part it's the can i get past this again <laughs> to get back to where i was before which was like kind of in a in a semi normal kind of place <laughs> you know yeah so. yeah no 100% i i had so medically things have never been normal for me i have a an autoimmune disorder that i was born with and and it causes my bones to be very very brittle uh especially and i'm i'm effectively growing a second spine my my vertebrae are all fusing from the bottom up. So oh. I'm, I'm, I'm used to weird stuff. Uh-huh. I got called ankylosing spondylitis, and yes. I don't recommend it. It's not. It's uh-huh. Right. Um, but so, I, like, I'm used to having weird stuff, and then since, you know, so 2010 was when I almost died in childbirth. 2013, I developed an abscess on my lung, and nobody knows why, just out of the blue. Um, 2014 is when I broke my back. 2016, mm. I developed epilepsy. 
And it was the epilepsy where I hit my wall. That up until then, I kept feeling like, okay, even if I don't want to get up again, I have kids, I have to get up again. You know, that there was sort of this, that whole think about the children concept. And after I developed the epilepsy, I mean, that was literally out of the loo. I was, I was sleeping. Right, so it was three or four in the morning that I went into seizure and I remained in seizure for five hours. Um, it was not good. And it took me days and days to even understand why I was in hospital. You know, and I came home and I didn't, literally didn't recognize my youngest child. Like she walked in the room and I was like, who's that? You know, and, and I, you know, the, the image that I had in my head was like when you, if you drop a rubber ball, that every time it hits the ground, it bounces back up again, but it doesn't quite bounce as high. And it doesn't bounce as high every subsequent time it lands. And there comes a point where it doesn't bounce at all. And that's where I was starting to feel in, like, 2016. Like, I just, I wasn't suicidal. I was done bouncing. And I was starting to look at it instead as, this isn't good for my kids to see me like this. And, like, feeling this sense of, like, just being a body in the room that's not their mother. That's not who I want them to think of their mother as. And so I got in a, in a very dark way, but not depressed, if that makes sense. I just, like I signed uh, DNR paperwork, do not resuscitate. And I was, you know, I was not 40 yet at the time. So that's a really, the, the doctors argue with you about it. Your family argues with you about it. Everybody pushes but you were just, just like, done I'm just you were done. just done. like I can't yeah I can't, I don't I don't want I wasn't suicidal I don't want to die but I cannot keep waking up in the hospital like this not knowing literally who I am much less where I am or what's going on and part of it we've since determined was the medication the first medication they put me on procedures um because I, you know, if you look at the side effects, like I had all of them, you know, all of the physical <laughs> side effects and mm-hmm. all, you know, GI and headache and memory loss and depression and suicidal thought. And I had come down one day, been a perfectly good mood, come down, look at my husband, he's sitting on the couch and he said, I think I'm going to die today. I think I'm going to kill myself. And he was like, <laughs> excuse me, you know, like that. That was not, I was expecting good morning, you know, and and that's when I was like, we have to see my neurologist because, like, I'm not depressed, but something's wrong. And so at least part of that darkness was that medication, but it was also just a case of, like, I I can't keep doing this. And I don't know. I'm I'm in a more ambiguous, ambivalent sort of state right now where like I told I've told my husband, I told my doctors like go ahead and attempt life saving means in a crisis. You know, uh, go ahead and call 911, go ahead and do CPR. You know, whatever whatever the the immediacy calls for, but no sustained, you know, no machines. No I will never go on a vent again. I will never go on a feeding tube. Those were awful. 
Um, so it's it just this. It's a weird thing because I'm not depressed and I don't hate my life. I just don't. I don't think. I think my issue is that I I can't contemplate living a life where I don't rebound high enough. I can't keep losing parts of myself. I get it. I completely get it. Um, you know, it, it, as a matter of fact, I, you know, I have uh, a lot of PTSD and I have a, a traumatic brain injury from the accident. Um, and I would go see uh, my uh, psychiatrist and ask him, I'm like, hey, um, I got to ask you a question. And he'd be like, yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, am I fucking crazy? And he's like, no, no, you're not fucking crazy. He's like, I've seen crazy. You're not that. And I'm like, well, why do I think I am? And he's like, I don't know. Why do you think that? You know, why are you going through the things that you're going through? You know, and I we had like this long conversation and I think I cried for like three days right after that, you know, <laughs> just, uh, just because, like, I guess he got to got to me, like, to a point where, okay, well, maybe I'm I'm not that, but maybe I am. <laughs> like, where where does this end? you know, like, how does this end? Like, does it ever end? And I've I've learned to um, embrace the the PTSD devil and and. Uh, keep them in my back pocket because I know that he's he's there or she's there and they'll pop up every once in a while when I least expect it, you know, when someone slams a plate too hard or, or something like that. Um, do you uh, have that at all? Do you encounter, uh, you know, something that someone says or someone looks at you or someone like an, an action happens, do, do you find that um, you'll, re, like, your uh, panic will just set Medically, in? Medically, not so much. Like, so I, I survived a violent assault when I was 12 years old. And so I had sort of the textbook PTSD from that. It went untreated for a long time, but by my early to mid twenties, I had had in the therapy and you know sort of going to grad school was as much selfishness as anything else, right? Like, what the hell is wrong with me? And oh look, <laughs> that's me. Look right there, that's me. And so I kind of wrapped my brain around it, and I had a solid decade where I felt like the PTSD was under control. I knew what it was, but I had addressed almost all of the symptoms. There's one that I couldn't get rid of. I still cannot, and we can come back to that. But for the most part, okay, no big. And then in in the year after, you know, I had such a hard time, March 2010 is when I went into the coma, and I was in the hospital for six weeks. And all of the rest of 2010 was just a nightmare of surgeries and I was on a wound vac, which don't look it up. <laughs> People out there don't Google that, but it's gross. It's awful, and it hurt, and it was just miserable. And I couldn't leave the house. I was on home health care for nine months. Uh, and, I know what it is. is. When even I agree. Company, you know, 
Right. But, you know, when even, even your insurance company thinks that you're too sick to leave the house, like that's saying something, right? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. so it wasn't until the end of 2010 when they effectively told me, like, look, this is, you're not all better. Like, I still had open surgical wounds, uh, I think, you, you know, in late November 2010. But they were like, look, you don't need the regular appointments. You don't need the, the home health care anymore. This is as good as it's going to get. And that's when I fell apart. And that's when I ended up going into the psych hospital because I was like, when you have physical illnesses, it's like, of course I feel bad. Look at how sick I am. Look at, you know, but then when they're like, okay, this is all better. Like live with this. I was like, I can't, I can't live with this. So, uh, you know, I was only in the, the psych hospital itself for a couple of days. And then I was, you know, saw a therapist for a little while and it wasn't connecting with me. Like I couldn't figure out, cause I started having really bad headaches as well. And, which I had not been having before. And I was having a hard time, you know, just this series of, you know, PTSD is not any one thing, uh, and which is why it can be hard to explain to people what it is. But I was having this, this sort of cluster of, like, crying a lot, poor memories, very bad sleep, um, nasty headaches, and uh, comparable stuff. And I I was certain that there was something wrong, like that I was having a stroke or something. Like I was just, I was sure that early early stage dementia maybe, like I didn't know. And so I went to see my my former neurologist up in New Hampshire because we had, we had only moved to Massachusetts not very long before I got sick. So I went up to see somebody who knew me beforehand, so he had a baseline. Right, and he let me sit in his office and cry, which was very sweet of him. And then at the end of it, he goes, "You're, you know, you have PTSD, right?" And I remember feeling like, "What are you talking about?" Like, no, I don't. I'm fine. I don't have PTSD. I, you know, I, I have memories or whatever. And I remember driving home from that, and about the first half of the drive, thinking like, "What a moron!" And then at some point, it clicked, and I was like, "Hey." I have PTSD, <laughs> like, oh, there it is. It all makes sense now, right? And so that's one of those moments where, like, I just couldn't, I was too close to it. Like, I used to diagnose people, and but I, you can't diagnose yourself. Like, I didn't have the perspective. So then fast forward to 2016, and I had the, you know, the first seizure, and they didn't know why. So, you know, epilepsy doesn't mean any one thing. It just means we don't know why you have seizures. That's what epilepsy is. And that's what I have. And I was realizing, like, since the, the seizures, I can't learn things. I can't take in new information. I can't learn people's names. I used to have, like, an eidetic memory for phone numbers or list, you know, long strings of numbers. I couldn't do it. I couldn't remember appointments, but I also couldn't work with lists. Like I couldn't stop writing once I started a list. I couldn't figure out when, when was it time to stop writing the list and stop start doing the thing. And so, in all of this, I was like, well, I don't think it's PTSD this time because I, 
I had that fairly under control. I that's what the first thing I did was you know open open the DSM and read the, read the symptoms over again. I was like, no, that's not it. That's not what this is. And so I went and saw my neurologist, my new guy down down in Massachusetts now, and I said, I think I'm using my mind. I think that maybe I have early onset dementia because I cannot learn things. I can't remember things. And I didn't even remember that I ever knew it. And so he had me sit up with their neuropsychologist, and he did this, this round of tests. And each of the tests I recognized because I used to administer them, but I couldn't remember the answer. So I went through that, and, and when he said, he's like, I'm going to write up a report, and I'll send it to you. Do you want to know right now like what your diagnosis is? I was like, of course I do. He says, well, you have ADHD. I'm like, no, I don't, <laughs> you know, so, you know, deja vu all over again. But the lesion that the epilepsy created, you know, like a scar on my brain is exactly in my right frontal lobe, which is where your executive functioning sits, your ability to make a plan, follow it through, and then assess how it went. That's where I have a scar now. And so I went from diagnosing, like I used to run a learning disability ADHD clinic during grad school, and now I have one <laughs> this isn't incre- like I don't even this isn't even funny irony this is just stupid you know but again there was that period of time of denial and not recognizing it in myself and then once it was clearly diagnosed and I had the space and time to sit in it and realize like oh there I am so I think there's a there's a power for me in accurate diagnosis and, I mean, it sucks, right, to get yeah. labeled as something. But it's also, there's a comfort in knowing, like, I'm not a freak and I'm not broken. So I have these extra things now, right? I have uh, ongoing occasional word aphasia and I have ADHD and that kind of thing. But for the PTSD, so I had it from age 12 and then there was sort of a resurgence at age 32, which mostly settled down, and they were they were triggered by different things, by different problems, depend you know, things that resembled the assault the first time around, things that resembled medical treatment and facilities the second time around. The one sustained problem that I've not been able to get rid of, and I mean, there's aspects of both similarity with an assault and the medical aspect of it is the dentist. I was never afraid of the dentist as a kid, never had a problem with it until I turned 12. And the idea of lying down with someone's hands in my mouth sent my psyche screaming out into the night, right? And I never got better with it. I just spent much of my adult life, like 15 years, not going to the dentist. That was my solution. Uh, yeah. yeah, I was just going to say you, you know? didn't go to the dentist, did you? Because I, <laughs> because I'm cannily like I have a problem with with being like laying laying in a chair with a bright light on me and like someone and well yeah I get it completely. Yeah, <laughs> I get it. Well, and so like so that just sort of stuck. Like I think I don't think anybody for many reasons. Nobody tied it into the PTSD exactly, and they just figured, 
I just had just had a fear of the dentist, which a lot of people have, but mine's active screaming phobia, and I, I this is not a competition. I just can't. And so whenever like a lot of people be like, oh, I'm scared of the dentist too, and I'm like, that's nice. Like it's not a competition. I just don't know how to explain that I can't do that thing that you force yourself to do and dislike. I I literally can't get in the chair. My dentist now is the nicest guy in the history of guys. He's Canadian, so he's so sweet and he apologizes a lot. And yeah, I'm terrified. Right? So whatever. After twenty ten, now you add the medical component, the smells and the bright lights and that kind of thing. And once again, my psyche jumps up and starts screaming because I got to a point where I could go to the dentist, like, for cleanings, and I could sort of white-knuckle it as long as I had enough Ativan on board. (laughs) And then they all fell apart after 2010. And here's the fun part. While I was in the coma, they didn't know what exactly had caused me to get so sick. It turns out there was just somebody in the delivery room had strep throat. And that got up my bloodstream. But because the hospital ignored me for three days, my uterus ruptured. And that created an opening for necrotizing fasciitis, which is the flesh-eating bacteria that you read about in tabloids. I had that. And I also developed sepsis. So, But the thing is, both necrotizing fasciitis and sepsis are opportunistic infections. You can't just get it. They're not just contagious. You, you have to have another infection that weakens your immune system first. And they couldn't figure out what that was because of some mix-ups with the labs. And so they just started throwing medications at me because I was dying. They, like they, they told my husband to start planning the funeral uh, because they just couldn't figure out what was making me so sick. And one of the medications, or maybe several of them, are the medication that's used to treat cancer patients. And its major side effect is that it weakens the calcium in your body, including your bones and teeth. Now, I was only on it for a couple of days before they figured out it was actually just strep. Like, all I needed was, like, penicillin, and I was fine. But in the meantime, I was on all these other meds, including these cancer drugs. I wasn't on them long enough to damage my bones like to erode my bones if anything like my 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 bones could use a little weakening like that's I grow I I took ankylosing spondylitis means I grow more bone than I'm supposed to so fine but I was on it long enough to destroy all of my teeth from the inside out so one by one sometimes several at a time they just snap off and so I have been Now, two or three times a year, I have to have oral surgery. I have to have it under general anesthesia because there is no way I can sit in the dentist chair otherwise. And I have a series of crowns and bone grafts and implants. And I I mean, (laughs) the irony, you know what I'm saying? Like, out of all of the possible long-term effects I could have, this is the one I get. Awesome. So, yeah, I still have active PTSD symptoms from that. And I, I, I can't, I have a very difficult time taking my kids to the dentist. I, I, I can't sit down um, in the waiting room or, you know, if I go in to consult with a dentist, like that's a bad day. I mostly make them call my husband. 
um, it's just, it's the dumbest thing. Like I was not raped by a dentist when I was 12 and I gave birth. I wasn't, didn't have a dental procedure in 2010, but the dentist is where my psyche just gets hung up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but, and I'm finding in, in our discussion that um, we're alike in the way that if there's a side effect, if it's like the one in 100 million will get it, <laughs> we're the one. <laughs> Yeah, special. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this may cause staph infection, but, oh, oh don't yeah, worry. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, I got more stuff. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you won't do get you, it. Do you find it, that people get into misery competitions with you? Oh, um, no. <laughs> no, I, I don't because <laughs> the majority of people I know are just like, boggled with all the, the bullshit that I've been going through in the last few years. I, now, you know, I I know that a lot of people go through a lot of people go through a lot of stuff. I try not to like compete with anyone in the misery index because I know that there's someone that um has come out of my situation much worse. I am very lucky in the respect that I have not lost a limb. I ha I have a repl- an ankle replacement but I have not lost the limb even though I've asked the doctor to saw off my ankle a couple of times it has not happened yet. Um I know that people are in you know paraplegics or they're in a hospital bed for the rest of their lives. So I'm not going to say that my life is completely sucky because I'm still here and I'm I'm present, even though I may not remember everything um, that I did five minutes before or, <laughs> you, you know, I, I'm still here. I'm still alive. I'm still above the ground. And I'm grateful for every every fucking millisecond that I'm on here, you know, even though like there are days that are like extremely dark. I, you know, I pull myself out of it and I look at a sunrise and a sunset or I have a good cup of coffee and I'm like, you know what, it's not that bad, you know, (laughs) it's not that bad. So, no, I, I, I try to, you know, look at it on the other side. There are a lot of people in, in more situations that, than I've been in and I, and you know they've persevered too. So if they could do it, I could do it. You know. And I think that's yeah, why that's, I. Pod- I mean, I find that people who have been in legitimately life-threatening situations, we all have like the secret handshake, right? The right, you get it. Yeah. You not. yeah. Right, but what's what's. And I, and I have to, I just have to sort of laugh at it. And I'm not laughing at them. I'm laughing at the situation. When I mentioned somebody like, yeah, I got real sick or yeah, I had a lot of surgeries or whatever. And they'll launch into like, oh, I was in the hospital once overnight with appendicitis. And I'll be like, aren't you cute? <laughs> <laughs> and, and I end up like, I, I know that I, I sound and in, for a moment, in the moment I'll feel condescending. And I don't mean that because their pain is their pain. And it's real to them. And whether I 
have a perfectly clear medical history or the worst ever has no impact on their life. So I just mm-hmm. usually, right. but I look at it because like a lot of times people do, like people who don't know me and I'll mention something about having gotten sick or whatever and they'll sort of charge in to compare stories uh-huh. um, or to be like, oh, I know exactly what it's like to have chronic pain because I have such and such. And I'm like, okay. Oh, that's nice, <laughs> <laughs> like, Okay. And you just have to let it go. Like, Oh, yeah, Elsa. I know. you got to let it go. The movie War Games in the 80s. Uh-huh. Right yeah. where the, you know, the, the only way to win is not to play at all. Right. Yeah, I'll I'll get the I was I was in a car accident and I had whiplash and that really sucked, you know. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. So I was in a car once. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know. <laughs> I yeah I I get I totally get that <laughs> I totally get that yeah I was in a car once and yeah <laughs> yeah well yeah. You, you know what would what like makes me laugh is like you know I was I I was unable to like walk on both <laughs> without the the use of like some sort of like a aid like a, a walker because I couldn't use crutches mm-hmm. so uh, because my arm mm-hmm. was was messed up too and people were like oh so you know um when are you going to come out again when when are you gonna you know and I'm like do you really want me like like a I really don't want to like go out to the bar in a walker like that's just (laughs) that's just like dangerous for everyone (laughs) not just me but everyone in the bar like how a cup holder on the walker, like <laughs> right. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. yeah people, but I mean, people, like, what do you like? Like, so for instance, for me, one of the things that I had to learn how to do was I, I, I had to make a very firm rule with myself in 2010. Don't say no when someone asks me to do something, whether it's them coming to visit me or taking me out for you know for dinner or a phone call, like whatever it was, don't say no in the moment because I would have this like surge of social anxiety and think about how hard it was going to be and how how much it was going to hurt and whatever. I could come up with a thousand reasons why I shouldn't do it. And so in the moment I would say no. But if I made it a rule that I have to say yes, that means I have I, I give myself a little time to really think it through even up until the day of. But the closer it got to the day, then the more likely it was that I was just going to go because I didn't want to inconvenience them by canceling on them. And I always felt better. I always felt better, and that's why I made that a rule, that I have to say yes. I have to try. And that was something that I think helped keep me going, you know, was just not letting myself fall into that sort of self-serving, like, I don't want to be a burden on anybody mindset what has helped you (sighs) I don't know see I'm I'm still not past it and I I'm admitting it because I I still say no I still say no a lot because I don't 
because I have a lot of like I have a lot of issues. Let's just put it to you that way. I have a lot of issues. I don't. I prior to this, I was a prior to the accident pre 2011. I was a music journalist. I would go out to concert like huge concerts. I go to a lot of like different clubs. I would go to, you know, and I still do. Um, but it has to be on my terms, and I have to feel like I'm protected. Um, because a, I don't want to get hurt and B, it it has to be on my terms. Like I have to feel like I'm safe. I feel, you know, like, so I'll choose places that I want to go and we'll go, you know, like I'll go to them, um, like different venues and, and things of that nature. But if it's a place that I'm unfamiliar with, I'll say no, because I'm not familiar with it. I, you know, uh, and I guess familiarity breeds contempt, and I guess I'm still in that, in that mode, um, but I, it's, it's very, very difficult for me, like, I don't, I don't trust as much as I should, and that's a really big problem for me like the this the accident took away a lot from me um uh my sense of uh spontaneity is gone um like my carefree style is gone my um anxiety level is way up my uh vigilant uh, my vigilance towards things are is way up so um I I don't know. I, it's hard to say. Like I I will do things on my terms. <laughs> Let's, I guess I'm stubborn in that respect. That may be your coping mechanism. Though, that you've learned how to set terms. Uh huh. Yeah, I guess so. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like that's a powerful. That's a powerful thing. It's yeah, I guess so. Yeah, yeah, I, I, and it's different from person to person, you know. I, mm-hmm. I say no a lot. I say, uh, you know, I say no a lot, and that's because I guess of my boundaries, and and I guess that is a powerful thing. I guess you could see it that way. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I find it as as a crutch sometimes, but um, because I feel like I'm I'm I mean, letting people down if I say no, but it's but we use it's my life. You can't walk. Huh? <laughs> you use a crutch when you can't walk. Like that's right, okay right. to do. Like it's better than falling down, right? And right. That's, that's the thing. It's like, like that's why that's why I preface it by, by saying like for me the important thing was to say yes whenever somebody asks because for me I tend to isolate. I'm prone to that. I tend to be a little bit. I'm an introvert who acts like an extrovert, right? Because you mm-hmm. kind of have to to do. The, the, psych, the psychology work and to work in it like you can't walk walk into a jail and be like oh please don't hurt me like you have to walk in oh yeah like you got this With, you know and, yeah. and so even if I didn't feel like I had like I knew how to act that way and but I tend to isolate and I spent like I could I could see that in myself like I, I when I was in the hospital I wouldn't let people visit and and I realized after a while like they needed to feel like they were helping and I needed to benefit from that visit. I needed to have that social connection and that I needed to let people care about me even though I was broken. 
and mm-hmm. I didn't like I had I I don't uh, I'm not hearing you talk about having four kids at home, <laughs> you know, or having you know a, a husband at home, and that I'm not asking for your personal information that way but I'm saying like my husband is very protective of me in that sense and so even on the day of if he didn't feel like I could cope with it emotionally or physically he would speak up and I had to learn to listen to that because I I tend to be pretty stubborn and so if somebody tells me I can't do something like that's that's like waving a red flag at a bowl like I'm gonna do it uh (laughs) but so learning learning to trust him and learning to accept that like that allowed me then to to set the rule for myself of don't say no, like say yes, I'm going to go out, I'm going to try it, but then also to allow myself to cancel. It was just that immediate panic, not panic, but you know what I mean, that, that immediate jolt of anxiety of how hard it's going to be. I call it the brain weasels. And that as soon as the brain weasels start screaming, I would just be like, no, 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 I don't want to go. It's too hard. And to learn to just ignore that and just say yes, like that's, that was my coping mechanism, but there's no reason on earth that your coping mechanism should be the same. And it sounds like one of the things that you've done for yourself has been to learn how to recognize your own limits and what you can and cannot control and to value control more. And so that, like, that sounds like a very powerful coping mechanism to me. Mm-hmm. Well, prior prior to that, I was always like, uh, I was always the yes girl, and I always did everything. So this is like a complete 360. <laughs> I learned to say no, and I learned to take control of of my life. Uh, you know, and uh, you know, granted, I you know I'm an introvert. You know, and and but I'm also you know with extroverted you know, uh, introverts really usually aren't, you know, music journalists, you know, (laughs) you know, like, they're not, they're not like, but that's, that's who I am. Like, I'd much, much rather be home, like, with my two cats watching, binge watching Dexter on Netflix, you know, (laughs) But and that's, I mean, I know. think that's a, that's one of that's the kind of all of the stuff that you're talking about. These are the losses that people don't think about. Like after, I, and I was able to go back to work for a couple of years after I got sick, and then when I developed, when I broke my back, and then developed epilepsy, like that was sort of the death knell of I I have to go on disability. I can't, I cannot go back to work, and accepting that was tremendously difficult, and. Losing this job that I loved because I couldn't, you know, like I had left other jobs because I had to because of kids or whatever, and there's some resentment maybe or some loss there, but it's a choice. This was, I can't do that. I can't do that work anymore, and I miss it. There's grief there, and like the, the tendency to be much more emotional and much more impulsive when I used to be pretty controlled. There's a loss there. There's a grief that has to be grieved. And grief sucks, man. Oh, yeah. Like, I find myself, like, watching television and I'll cry at the drop of a hat, like, a 
uh, SPCA commercial will come out, and I'll be bawling my eyes out. Now, get me around the Mr. Rogers documentary, and I'm bawling like a like you know, like I I think uh, Paul from Varmints was uh, saying you know how he wants to see the God the movie. Get it. Yeah. Paul, wait, hang on just a second. Paul Chomo, he sees every fucking episode. <laughs> I have to just point this out. It's, he's one of my closest friends, and I love him to death. But if another podcaster is going to be mentioned on an episode that I'm in, it's going to be Paul every fucking time. Anyway, I'm so sorry. <laughs> no, that's okay. But he's cool. But we—he was saying like how he, you know, he's not sure if he's gonna go see the movie because you know he might be emotional. And I, I said to him like something to the effect of like, dude, I, I don't know if I'm gonna wait until it comes out, or I'll just like go to the theater with sunglasses on because I don't want to see people like have people see me like bawling my eyes out and you know come out of a movie theater all like red and sobby and cry you know <laughs> because my emotions like completely change too like i i cry mm-hmm. at like someone will look at me funny and i'll well i'll probably laugh but then <laughs> i'll cry too so <laughs> mm-hmm. um but uh, you know the the thing with disability too i mean i'm on disability as well and i find it in in uh my age bracket you know i'm i'm 48 and it's still like a stigma like oh you don't work you're on disability and it's like oh, it's not that i don't want to work are you i'm like yeah you don't look sick um uh why can't you work and it's uh, it's so frustrating that that whole mm-hmm. the whole stigma behind it. I hate it, and I wish it would be like talked about more. And I get I get both ends. I get the I'm 42, and so similar. Um, I don't look old enough. I don't look sick. I can walk around, and so I don't know how to feel. Like, look, do you want to see my latest MRI? Would you like me to prove? Exactly mm-hmm. how many fractures I've had, you know, whatever. And, you know, I, I've learned how to just let it go and be like, yeah, aren't I lucky yeah. that I don't look sick? But <laughs> yeah, right. so there's, there is the stigma. The stigma's shitty. And there's also, if I don't get the stigma in a negative, like, prove it sense, I will, I will hear people who are like, oh, I wish I could stay home all the time. <gasps> like, no, <laughs> no. No, like maybe they do. Maybe that's what they wish, and maybe if they had it, they would love it. Maybe, mm-hmm. but I can tell you that for me, losing my career was losing a huge part of myself. Like each time, you know, physically, some of the long-term effects that I've had from all surgeries and that kind of thing, it, mentally, cognitively, from the you know, being in a coma is the equivalent of a traumatic brain injury and mm-hmm. then having the epilepsy. And and so, like, every time one of those things happens, but also every time I had to lose a job and then just just making that choice to apply for disability. And then, of course, the first time you get denied. And in my case, I was lucky that I didn't have to go to court. Like, they denied it and then Less than a month later, I got a letter from a judge saying, "Yeah, about that. Never mind. We've decided to grant oh, yeah, it to you." That... But that 
process is so demoralizing because we are socialized, especially women, I think, but in general, mm-hmm. in our society, we are socialized to, talk, you know, stay positive, smile more, and focus on the positive, tell people how great it is. And then suddenly you're applying for disability and you have to maximize the negative. And it's, yeah, it, it, it's like getting hit upside the head, like to realize, like, shit, this is actually what my life is like. Like, I don't like that at all. It's right. true. I cannot do that thing. You know, the, here's a checklist of things that normal people should be able to do, and I can't do any of them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I was denied twice, and I had to go to court. And um, at, I think at that point I had just had my ankle replacement, and the – the whole the board, you know, you know, was like, you know, they stick you in a room with your attorney and uh, occupational therapist, uh, like a physical therapist, and a, a couple of judges, and they ask you a bunch of questions, like what can you do, what can't you do, and they had never heard of an ankle, a total ankle replacement before. So they were more fascinated with that than what I could and couldn't do, you know. <laughs> so um, it, it took a it's while, but I, I, it's, it's yeah, just, yeah. It's, it's awful. The whole process is awful. And you know, when you have to fight the system on the one hand in order to convince them that you're bad enough, Oh, yeah, I still got review paperwork, like, are you still bad enough? <laughs> and list all Actually, the things yeah, that... I, I just had to. I just had to resubmit that, and, and it makes me crazy. It's been five years. Like, no, you uh-huh. know what? Guess what? My, my, I'm not better. It's great. Thank you for that. That yeah. was wonderful. You know. And, and then, the, and then, and then there's the fear that they're going like, to yank oh. it away from you, and then you're, you're going to oh, be forced to do what you can't do, you know? There's always that underlying yeah, all the fear time. in the back of your it's, head. It's terrifying. And and then on top of that, you get other people who don't get it, who who are like, yeah. oh, I would love to stay home all the time. Like, really, really? Okay. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Yeah. They just give me a look. Oh, you don't look old enough to be on disability. What do you mean? I don't look old enough to be on disability. You don't look smart enough to be wearing that uniform. Yeah, I say I always say I'm like I'm 84 in a 48 year old's body. You know, I'm like your grandmother could beat me in a road race. You know, yeah. Have her, have her dare me. Let's go, Grandma. You know, right? Let's let's do this. And, I mean, and, that's, and that's the thing I think is that's a that's another huge coping mechanism. I think is that you just you have to laugh at things that are stupid. You have to acknowledge uh-huh. the stupidity. Like I've uh-huh. had um, abdominal CT scans too. So like when I came out of the coma, I had um, among other things, I had one 18 inch incision from sternum to pelvis, and then I had a hole the size of a grapefruit all the way through my abdominal wall. I had no idea that human beings could live through that, by the uh-huh. way. But apparently, yeah. yeah, apparently that's the thing. You can, yeah. And, uh, yeah, and I had, as among other things, I had a radical hysterectomy. And I went in, like, two months later for a follow-up CT just to sort of make sure things were, I don't know, whatever they were supposed to be doing. And they asked me if I was pregnant. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I'm trying to come up with a way 
to say, are you fucking kidding me? Without saying fucking. But I don't, mm-hmm. I can't. <laughs> like, <laughs> you have to laugh at it. Like, you have to, you have to find those moments that are just so ridiculously absurd. Because otherwise yeah. I think that's how life wins. That's how life breaks you down. Uh-huh. Well, I think, it, it, you know, here I have a funny story in regard to my auto accident. Um, they they called the helicopter for me because they, they weren't sure if they needed to medevac me out. But I came to after a while. I woke up or, you know, got out of whatever blackness I was in. And so I was able to have them get me out of my vehicle and into an ambulance. So I'm in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and the EMT said to me, I'm going to call this in to the trauma unit, but don't worry, you don't need your spleen. And I go, excuse me? I don't need my fucking spleen? What are you talking about? He's like, oh, internal bleeding you know if you have internal bleeding you really don't need your spleen i'm like what are you talking about i'm like <laughs> i'm like what i'm like just get me to the hospital you know like i don't I'd like you spleen. to not tell me anything else right now like not to you but to the emt like i don't want you to don't reassure me <laughs> it's not working I'm like, really? I don't need my spleen? (laughs) So one of the things that I did um, in 2012, so about two years, uh, it started the process in 2012. I didn't actually Uh complete the – so I got a tattoo in 2016, but I started collecting. um, Oh, words, right? I guess 2013, yeah, where – I, 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 what happened was I brought my, the child, my son, who, whose birth led to this whole medical disaster. I, I brought him in for a well child checkup. I think it was his either second or third birthday. And it was in his chart that he was in the NICU, the neonatal ICU for like a week. And this is a kid who he was so I had three biological kids and one adopted and all three of my biological kids were were seven pounds or larger at four and five weeks early. So they're huge babies, just like stay puff marshmallow <laughs> babies, you know. And so why was he in the NICU? And I said, Well, it's because I had been, you know, med flighted down to Boston because of this blah 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 and the pediatrician it was it was like a like a PA it was somebody I didn't know and he looks at me he goes oh that was you and in that moment I was like enough enough like I need to stop being all about having been sick like I need to have some aspect of my life that is defined by survival rather than by almost dying. And so I got this tattoo, and what I did is I wrote to all of my loved ones, friends and family, and said, write me a word that makes you think about my recovery rather than my illness. 
And one of my favorite words on there is the word pants. And that comes from being in the ICU and having a doctor come up. Now, this is early morning. Like, they, you know, the nurse, the ICU nurse is still cleaning me up from the night before. And that means all manner of things that nobody needs described in a podcast. But it was not good. And I'm lying on the side that did not have a hole through it, clinging to the side of the bed. I'm in agony. I'm like just like I got on like socks in a bra in the hospital, Johnny, and that's it. And, you know, otherwise I'm just there's no dignity. There's no dignity in being sick. So I, I was not having a good moment. And this doctor comes up and he kind of stands near the head of my bed, but I can't see him because I can't turn my head. Um, because I'm busy clinging to the side of the bed. He starts talking to me about some procedure that I'm going to have that day. And I'm like, stop, stop, stop. And he looked at me the way that people look at museum artifacts. Like, oh, how interesting. How fascinating. I didn't know that these lumps in the beds could talk. (laughs) Right? And Mm -hmm. I'm like, listen, I'm having a bad moment. I'm having a bad day right now. Could you give me a couple? Like, I can't even take in what you're saying to me, and I can't respond. And he's like, well, but, you know, I, I've got a blah, blah, blah. Like, I, you know, and I'm like, all right, all right, all right, all right. You're a busy guy. You're important. You've got things to do. Okay. Take off your pants. And he didn't, he's like, well, <laughs> take off your pants. Like, I have no dignity right now. That's my ass that's hanging out of the back of this hospital, Johnny. I'm in a ton of pain. Everything sucks right this second. Like, there's nothing good about the moment that I'm having. I feel like we should at least, like, you dropping trow is not going to make us equal. But I feel like it would be a nice gesture. So could you just help me out? And he was like, how about I go talk to the guy next door and come back? (laughs) Like, that would be great. Thank you. And that was sort of my first, this was like a day and a half after I came out of coma, and it was like my first victory. You know, my first sense of like, okay, I can't control very much of my life right now. But I control that That's one, one moment. thing. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. <laughs> Just the expression on his face. I can only imagine. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> oh wow, that's great. <laughs> I never even thought of doing that. That's awesome. <laughs> because yeah, I've you're you're in these. No. <laughs> well, you know, like you're putting these situations, and yeah, I mean, you have no dignity, and that's another thing that's stripped away from you in in those situations is your sense of like dignity and privacy and. And respect, you know, for oneself mm-hmm. because everyone's going to see everything, you know, whether you want them to or not. So, <laughs> and in most cases, it's not. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, and you just, you become this, like I said, like a museum exhibit. Like I had all kinds of doctors that had nothing to do with my, like, I had orthopedists, I had oncologists, I had, uh, I don't even remember all of the different, like, but just all kinds of doctors came in to see me, 
when I was in the, the ICU, both when I was in the coma and then when I came out of it, which is so invasive anyway. There's no privacy there, but it was because everybody wanted – so what happened to me, there's about 4 million live births in the U.S. every year, and of those, 100 get sick the way that I did. Yeah, so you were uh, – put- yeah, so one in four, I, you know, because 98 of those die, Nine, of those 100, uh-huh. 98 die, one loses all four limbs and one walks away. So so you were the quote-unquote freak show, right? I yeah, mean, that, well, everybody wanted to see, everybody wanted to be able to say that, yes, I once saw a patient with. Yeah, you know, I, and, I know. And so you stop being a person and you start just being a case. Uh-huh. And that's so tremendously demoralizing and depersonalizing and, yeah, no dignity. And it's just lonely because you're like, you're in this room with all these other humans and they're talking to each other and they're not looking you in the eye. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, I mean, my, I have an orthopedist. I, I moved um, from Pennsylvania to Florida um, basically because of my met- the metal inside of me was freezing on the inside out. So I needed to leave. I was like, okay, screw this. <laughs> I'm going to Florida um, where it's like hot <laughs> and there's there's no snow and ice. I can't deal with it anymore. So I asked my orthopedist in Pennsylvania. I wrote, I did some research and printed out a bunch of names of orthopedists down here where I could go. And the first person on the list was like one of his best friends, one of the orthopedists that that he completely trusts that he learned ankle replacements from and, uh, you know, had a practice down here. So he's like, go go to him. He's the best. So I, I go to him, and he knew exactly who I was. And I said, wait, so do you guys go to, like, ankle replacement conventions and talk about me like I'm a case at the bar? And he's like, what do you mean? And I'm like, do you talk about me over drinks? <laughs> like, not me particularly, but the case. <laughs> and he's like, uh, I think we have, yeah. And I said, well, don't call me case number this and that. Just say Sherry, the one with the fucked up ankle. You know, he'll know what you're talking about. <laughs> like, don't talk to me like I'm a case number. Just talk, you know, speak of me. If you're going to speak of of my situation, speak of me as in a person, not a case, you know, Mm -hmm. (laughs) because because he knew exactly, you know, like you walk into an office and they're like, oh, yeah, I know everything about you. (laughs) Like, how much do you Mm -hmm. mean you know everything about me? Like, this is the first time I'm meeting you. How do you know all this stuff, you know? So because I'm case number blah, 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 and you know, when they're speaking about the complications uh, that could happen after an ankle replacement, you know, I'm not, I'm not a case number. I'm a person. I'm a human being. So Mm -hmm. at least speak of me in like, like by using my name, you know? Yeah. Oh, you're, oh, you're the, well, I mean, they can't, like I get HIPAA laws, but I hit that moment in, in my kid's pediatrician, like there's zero reason that my kids' pediatrician should ever have heard of my case. Like, right. you know, but in terms had. of legally speaking or whatever. But they had, you know, because all, all, all I was, look, I was super sick when he was born. And so they kept him in the NICU because my husband had to be at my side in Boston. 
you know, and that, that like would have been enough, but because it had it happened right around his birth that they were able to sort of put two and two together and, and, Oh, Oh, that was you. And I was just like, you know what? I hate everything. Like I hate everything right now. You know, like turns out there are aspects of me that are not my medical history. Right. Like I am a, I'm a mother, I'm a, a wife, I'm a human being, I'm funny, you know, I have a, a touch of sarcasm, I like to, I like to bake, uh, you know, or, or whatever, I like to go out for walks and, and, you know, on a beach with a pina colada in my hand, you know, like, <laughs> I'm more than just right. that person, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm right. just making things up, but... <laughs> Right, you know, all like, for them not knowing everything about me. Like, I'm okay with that, like, because that goes into, like, stalker territory there. And I wasn't really interested in that either. But it, but that sense of, like, you just get so, it's so reductionistic. Our medical system is so reductionistic right now. And there's no, like, there was nobody, nobody suggested openly to my husband, like, hey, you know, you might want to get yourself and the kids on a wait list to see a therapist while I was laying there dying, you know, and it's like, you know, it never occurred to anybody, it, you know, it was one of the first things that I said to him when I came out of the coma was like, we're going to need a therapist, like everything just changed, I don't even know what just changed, but I know it was everything, and instead, it's like each individual specialty has its place, and that all the, the primary care physician seems to do was right referrals. And I am now on, since 2010, I'm on my fourth primary care physician, and I love her. It's the first one that I've had since 2010 where I'm like, she gets it, you know, and she doesn't just automatically refer me places if she feels like she can do a thing. And Mm -hmm. She, you know, reads my chart, you know, more thoroughly. And so she kind of gets like, how do you know you're allergic to this really weird, bizarre, obscure medication? Mm-hmm. You know, she took the time to read the chart and figure it out. And so on the one hand, I was just delighted to finally find a doctor that saw me as a whole person. And like when my father died, she effectively cleared like an hour off out of her schedule for me the next day and I just sat in her office and cried and all I was doing was going in to say I need Ativan and I need something for nausea because I can't stop throwing up and she just sat with me for like an hour so on the one hand I am deeply deeply grateful for the humanity of this woman on the other hand why the hell am I grateful for this person being a decent human being like, why is it because so she's weird? treating you like a human being. That's why. No, but what I'm saying is why is it so weird to find someone in the medical profession who knows that they're dealing with humans? Like, it shouldn't be weird to – like, I, you, shouldn't, you shouldn't give somebody a gold star for doing what they're expected to do. Right. Oh, I agree. I agree completely. Like, you know, I, I have a, a – a physician's assistant who I see who who completely gets it and you know she'll ask me questions and she'll she gets everything that I'm going through like I had a, a, a breast cancer scare and you know she's I wasn't completely um I guess uh trusting of the 
place, the facility who did my mammogram, and she said, okay, look, I'll send it off to one of my friends who uh, specializes in this to see what she thinks. And so I'm like, really, you do that for me? And she said, yeah. So she said, I can't promise that I'll call you, like, this Friday or even the next Friday, but it'll be soon, and I'll give you her her answer. And I'm like, okay, I completely, you know, thank you for that, you know. And it turned out to be nothing, but at least, you know, she, uh, you know, took time out of her life and, you know, to to refer something to someone else to check out to ease my mind and, and hers too, because she saw something that didn't look right either, you know, mm-hmm. you know, things like that, you know, because usually if something happens with, with a doctor, they'll refer you to someone else without blinking an eye and looking at, looking you in the eye either too, you know, they'll yes. just be like, Oh, that's not me. That's someone else. And here you go. Here's here's a piece of paper. Go see this person. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, I guess. You know. <laughs> well, and this, the thing is that it shouldn't be so hard and so rare to find doctors that just are, just are, are human beings. Like I get that you can't connect too closely to your patients. You know, as a doctor, you're going to be around a lot of people that die, and so you have to be self-protective in that sense. And so I don't want my doctor to be my best friend. I don't want a friend her on Facebook. I don't. Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, that kind of thing. Like, I want there to be limits. She's not my buddy. But at the same time, some basic compassion shouldn't be so rare. Yeah, and it goes a long way, too. Mm-hmm. Like, you walk, out, you walk out of the doctor's office feeling like you mean something to someone, even though you're not going to go out for, you know, go out to brunch with them, you know. <laughs> so. Exactly. You need to feel like you matter, you know, and that's, uh, like, at the, uh, like, at the start of my podcast, I have a disclaimer, you know, and it's, this, you know, this podcast is not safe for work or, you know, small children or houseplants, whatever, and that I protect privacy and confidentiality. I'm not breaking HIPAA laws. And then I give the information for the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, you know, and the last two words in the disclaimer are you matter. And the number of people who have said to me that there are days where they'll listen to the first minute of my podcast just to hear that because that's the only time in their day that they'll hear those words. And that breaks my fucking heart. Because it shouldn't be that hard to say and it shouldn't be that, that not, it, it is important to hear, but it shouldn't be that hard to hear it. Do you know what I mean? Like to find somebody that says it to you in a genuine way. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, why people podcast, I think it's, is not, you know, and I would say like 85% of the podcasters are out there because they want to connect with someone and it doesn't necessarily need to be someone that's close to them. It just needs to be somebody, somebody who likes to 
play Dungeons and Dragons or someone that likes um, trashy novels or someone that wants to talk about uh, the history of Rome. It's, it's finding a group of people that connects with them, and I think that's why people do it. That's why I do it. You know, I, I do it simply because I want to help other podcasters get the word out there and maybe meet a few people that I connect with. You know, that, that's why I do it, and I think that's why you do it also. It's, it's about connection. Yeah, it's not how I, you know, like I started it because I needed something for myself. Right. You know, I needed to feel competent and I needed to feel productive, but I kept with it. I stayed with it, both for the connections that I've made with the people that I've talked to on my show, with other podcasters. And I mean, I just saw you joined my Facebook group this morning. That group of people that's like my favorite place on the internet. And it's because it is this entirely random grab bag of inappropriate memes and like terrible puns and, you know, silliness, but it's also a place where people can like every Saturday we do a selfie thread, which on the one hand feels kind of like, it's not like I had never taken a selfie before I started a podcast. And so that's been a weird skill that I didn't think would have anything to do with an audio medium. But I think it helps everybody connect in the group, both those who take part and those who just lurk, like mm-hmm. to see that these are human beings and it's the same people every week and they're predictable and they're, there's that face and it's familiar to me and that's cool. Like I think that helps bring people in. And there are also alongside all of this, you know, shiny, happy stuff, is when people can just post and say, like, I'm having a really shitty day or a major loss or the anxiety is really bad today or whatever. Like, people can be very serious and vulnerable in there at the same time. And I'm, I never thought about starting a Facebook group before I started my show. And the only reason I did is because somebody told me I should do that because it would be better for promotion. And I don't give a shit about promotion. Like, I would estimate that probably a solid 25% of the people in that group barely even know that I have a podcast. Like, they don't listen to every episode. They don't. And and that's totally fine. Like, Mm -hmm. what matters to me is the group vibe and the safety of it. And I don't like that safe space concept because I don't really entirely know what that means, but it sounds earthy crunchy. Um, but just that, that it is a safe place and that people who have pushed the boundaries of respect or who have gotten, it's both safe in the sense that you can say anything you want in there and you're still a member and people will accept you no matter what. And also on the other side, you are held to a certain accountability of don't be a dick. And if you're going to be them, there's going to be consequences. And I think both of those coming together, that's something special. Like that group is something special and that, that connection is really important to me. And I would, like if I had to choose between 
but if if keeping the podcast if like let's say I wanted to end my podcast but I had to keep it going in order to keep the group going, I would one hundred percent keep podcasting even if I didn't want to. Mm-hmm. So I'm lucky that I like it. Yeah. <laughs> well, we've got like a couple, like only two minutes left. So um, tell people where they can listen to the podcast or join the Facebook group. I am at iwbpodcast.com or iwbpodcast on all of the social medias. So, or you can look up uh, Ignorance Was Bliss. Um, I'm around. I'm online way too much, so people can find me. <laughs> okay, great. Well, this was a conversation. <laughs> um, so I want to thank you for coming on my show, and I look forward to being on your show. We'll figure it out one way or another. I'll figure out my, my technical difficulties and <laughs> or my obstacles, whatever, but, uh, yeah. So uh, thanks again, Kate, for coming on my show. And everyone, thanks for listening to your podcast or mine.